And we are now in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And here we come to a really important text because I really think that uh, one of the biggest problems men have in living the Christian life is that they don't know who they are. They really haven't thought through their identity and what it means to be a man, but what it means to be a man who is in Christ and has his name on them. Just think about it. To have the name Christian. For those of you who put your faith in Christ or walking with him, uh, in the Greek, Christianos, a little Christ, a little Messiah, a little king, a little prophet, a little priest. That's who you are. And I think one of the biggest failures that we experience is our forgetfulness of what God has called us to be. And basically what he's done is he has in Christ, when you come into Christ, you are lifted out of the world and all of its bondage and gradually all of its corruption and all of its judgment. You're just lifted out of that and you're cleansed and you're put back in it. And you're put back in it to remain cleansed. That's the difficult part. If he would just save us and take us straight to heaven, that'd be a whole lot easier. But for reasons that only God knows, really, and ultimately it's for his glory, he has taken men out spiritually, mentally, psychologically. He's taken them out of the world. He's put them back in it and kept them holy in it. And that's really something. And so what you find in the Scriptures over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament, is beware of being corrupted again. It's like those of you who are surgeons, you know, before you have surgery, you wash your hands really carefully with special soap and all that, and then you, you hold them up like this, and then the nurse comes up and puts those gloves. I don't know how you do anything with those gloves on, but they put those surgical gloves on you. You're holding your hands like that. You don't want to touch anything. Why? You'd, you'd corrupt your gloves. you corrupt yourself. You wouldn't be an effective surgeon. Now you're going to go take something out, but you're going to put something back in called germs. And so you've you got to stay cleansed. It's, it's like when you get married, you know, they put one of these things on you. So everybody can see you've been set apart for one woman. Stay away. i got one of these on. And same thing, holding up my hand. Say, I don't want to be corrupted. I don't want to corrupt the marriage with other intimate relationships. So uh, it's the same thing when you become a believer. The Lord cleanses you, and then he's saying, don't corrupt yourself and lose your power. Because uh, here's the deal. We, out of all the peoples of the earth, are called out of the world so that we can serve the world. And what we're going to see is you can't serve them if you're becoming like them. As soon as you lose that tension between you and the world, you've lost your ability to serve them. Abraham was called to bless the nations. The Lord blessed him so that he might be the avenue of God's blessing the entire world. And in order to do that, he has to get up and leave idolatrous Ur of the Chaldees and go to a new place, a holy land, where God is going to establish His people so that eventually the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way down to David, and all the way down to Christ, the son of David, 
may go throughout the world and bring all the nations into God's presence. That's the game plan. And it doesn't work if we get ourselves all corrupted and become like the world around us. That's the big challenge. In the Old Testament, we have a theocracy. That is, it's a political, a geopolitical, or in this case, before they take possession of the land, it's just a political national group in which God grants His imminent presence and calls them as a nation to be the church. So the church and the political entity, the nation, are coterminous. They're the same people, basically. And so God is, His church is a nation. Therefore, they have physical claims to a land. They have political laws and political leaders, but it's God's nation. And we don't have that today. The nation is in dispersion among many political nations. We don't have a geopolitical entity until Jesus Christ comes back physically and restores the theocracy. And that will be the people of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So in the, new, in the Old Testament, you have a theocracy. And we're going to see that this idea of knowing your identity and keeping yourself from corruption and fighting the right battle on behalf of the kingdom is very physical. Which you would expect if God physically calls a theocracy, they're physically going to be His instruments of judgment and blessing in the world, physically. So you should expect, since the world is made up of sinners, there ought to be a lot of blood and guts because sinners deserve to be punished. And there ought to be a lot of physical fructification of the earth and uh, rain and blessing, and thus we will see there is. So there, there are physical implications when the theocracy is physically present on the earth. And one day, those same physical blessings will return when the physical theocracy returns to earth in the person of Christ. Let's look at chapter 7 then. That's kind of an introduction to get the framework of why Moses is going to say some really tough things. Be prepared. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. He says to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and the Termites, seven, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with him. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God and shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it for it is devoted to destruction. <clears throat> okay, what we're going to see in the first five verses is that Moses t- is telling these folks that God's people must avoid all spiritual compromise. They must avoid all spiritual compromise. All God's people of all, God, of all ages must avoid spiritual compromise. Leave your finger there and turn over to page 2396 in your Bibles. <clears throat> 2396, that would be James chapter 4. And James here is talking about 
our passions. And he says in verse 3, you, this is James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now look at verse 4. You adulterous people, that is, you got married and now you're compromising your marriage. You're polluting your marriage. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? All right? So here's the analogy. You adulterous people. He's saying you got married and now that woman who came up to your wife and told her in the ladies' room a few weeks ago that she is going to allure you away from her. A woman comes up to your wife and tells her in the ladies' room, I'm going after your husband. And she comes out of the ladies' room and the, the woman comes up to you at the cocktail party and starts to snuggle up to you and you start flirting with her. I don't want any verbal descriptions of what your wife would say or do. It might not be nice. But you know how angry she would be. And you know how angry the Lord is when he marries you. And the one who said, watch this, God. I am going to tease that man and take him away from you. Just look at the discussion in Job chapter 1. How Satan challenges God about the faithfulness of God's own people. And then Satan comes along and you nuzzle up to him and start flirting with him. You, you could understand. And look at verse 5. He says, uh, Therefore, I'm sorry, the latter part of verse 4, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you have to realize that the reason compromise is so ugly is it's personal. You have two personal arch enemies. God, the sovereign of the universe, and this peon angel who's acting like God and who's told God to his face that he wants to take over. That's what you're dealing with. It's, it's this mighty war that's going on. So what makes it personal is that every decision you make and everything you do is siding with one or the other. And obviously, God takes this personally. Uh, turn over a few pages in your Bible, the next book over to First Peter. And you remember those of you who studied with us First and Second Peter a few years ago, that you get this wonderful statement in chapter 2, verse 11, page 2408. 2.11 where, well, let's back up. Look at 2.9, and he, he, first, once again, he's reminding you who you are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are possessed by God. He owns you. Now look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, look at that. Live an honorable life so that when they persecute you and lie about you, then what? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So live such a life so that even if you don't convince them now, and even if they rail against you now, when the theocracy returns and the king is on his throne, let them glorify God through acknowledging that you were right, that you picked the right king. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says similar words. Where do you think Peter got it? Jesus says, let your good works, let, let your work shine before men. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So our lifestyles are very important. They must not be corrupted because they're powerful weapons. Keep turning your Bible over to 1 John, two books later. And uh, look in 1 John chapter 2. This would be page 2432. And there, 1 John 2.15, look what John says. And we got James, we got Peter, now John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So clearly you can see that Jesus and his apostles are saying, you've got, you're in this war between these divine powers, and every moral decision you make is very personal. You're taking sides, and you've been sanctified and set apart to take sides with the Lord. All right, that is what is being said here. You're going into the Holy Land of these first five verses. You're not to compromise. You're not to be corrupted. You're not to be transformed by them. You, rather, are to be used to transform them. Now, let's look at verses 1 and 2, and we need to spend a few moments here. We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it especially in chapter 20 when we come to the theology of war, frankly, and talk about war and even police actions and even your physical aggression, when is it justified? And how do we figure out how to be men of peace and also engage war? We'll talk about that later. But for now, let's look at the precise reason that Moses is giving this direction to them now, which we would call holy war. Uh, we would call it, it's in Hebrew, it's harem, H-E-R-E-M in English. It's, it's devoting things to the Lord and devoting them to destruction, holy war. And here's what I believe the essence of it is. We must represent God's interests. He says, when the Lord your God gives these nations over to you, in other words, you didn't, you didn't win this battle because of your great military strategy or your great physical strength, or athletic prowess. You're winning these battles because the Lord won them for you. Same with you. When you've had a good day, you didn't get so compromised, at least that you can remember a whopper during the day. Just remember who won that battle for you. The Lord did it. He's defeating those entities for you. However, He calls you into the battle. So yes, the Lord is going to defeat the seven great nations that are in, the, in Canaan, but He's going to do it through these Israelites putting their lives on the line. The same thing with you. You've got to go fight the battle, but the Lord's the one who's defeating them through you. And 
when you go into this land, you must not have the land take over you, but you take over the land. That's what it means to take possession of the land. And it's true that God owns every square inch of this universe. It's all His. doesn't matter who has a title deed in a courthouse. doesn't matter what some king claims to own as his boundaries. doesn't matter about who won battles in times past. Those are human distinctions. But God owns it all, and we're quarreling over God's property. It's His property. And even if you own some land, how long do you own it? Three score and ten, and then you're gone. You can pass it on to somebody else, and they can own it for three score and ten. But guess what? It keeps passing on. And guess who endures and still owns it all along? The Lord Himself who created it. So God has sovereign rights over all of His property, and He can do with it as He wishes. Now, what I want us to notice is that what Moses is saying is no matter where you go, you must represent the Lord's interests. So whatever land you own, whether it's your house or a farm or something else you've got, that property is to be used for his interests. Whether you have your own body, your own time and energy, the relationships you have, the money you have in the bank, everything is for his interests. So the Lord is saying, when I give you something, and he's getting ready to give them a huge victory in battle, when I give you to it, don't give it to you, don't forget that I gave it to you, and don't forget I still own it. And don't forget that I gave it to you for a purpose to carry out the mission. And it's just amazing to me how we can take pride in all the things that we accumulate and we, we scale ourselves and our importance based on how much stuff we have a title deed to. And it doesn't belong to us anyway. And the purpose of it is not to arrogate to ourselves prestige and power and possessions, but it's to serve Him and the nations with it. How easy it is to forget when you begin to get your hands on a few title deeds, a few dollars, a few numbers, a few claims to fame. Now, the big question in this text, verses 1 through 5, is obviously this. How is it that the very people who are supposed to bless the nations go in among the nations and wipe them out? Explain that. How is it that the very people who are supposed to bless the nations end up destroying the nations? If you've been reading in New Atheism with Sam Harris and some of those other folks, uh, and you only need to read one of them because they all kind of take the same arguments. This argument's going to be there every time to discredit the faith of the Scriptures. How is it that these people think they're really any different than any other religion who has terrorists and jihad and holy wars. They're all the same. You see, religion is the big disease of the people. It's the problem. That's what Sam Harris and others would say. What's the answer here? Well, several things. And we've touched on, on this one before. Remember, from Genesis 15, 16, these are not innocent people. I'm talking about the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hivites the Girgashites. These are not innocent people. God says He's going to leave them there until their sin has finally come to the point that He's going to exercise His judgment on them. This is not ultimately Israel's judgment. This is God's judgment. Israel is destroying people 
on a holy mission where they have a revealed word from God. Now, I know the false religions would say they have a revealed word from God too. So what's the difference? One really does have a revealed word from God and the other one is coming up with, with, with daydreams. I remember as a kid, I was four years old and I was going to figure out how you can find treasure, buried treasure. And I remember my technique. I look up into the sun and then wherever those bright places are on the ground, when I look down at the ground, that's where the treasure is going to be. And so I start digging. My mother says, Sandy, why are you digging the yard looking for treasure? That was a false religion. It was a four-year-old false religion. And if you'll go back and examine the religions of the world, you'll see that they all begin with fantasy. Not too different from looking up at the sun and seeing spots on the ground and digging for treasure. But God actually does speak. And when He does, as He spoke to Abraham and is recorded in the book, or when He speaks to Moses and gives him the Ten Commandments, that is the Word of God. And the people of God were shown to, to know how it was true. Folks, water came out of a rock. Manna came out of heaven. Mount Sinai shook. And fire and smoke enveloped it. And Moses heard a voice. And I think I simply believe that Moses is telling us the truth. I believe that the Apostle Paul is not crazy. I believe the twelve apostles are credible witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to pick what you're going to believe. I choose to believe that these people are reasonable people, not just geniuses, but they're reasonable people and moral people. And that what they're saying was attested to by hundreds of people who saw the mighty, miraculous works of God verifying what He was saying to His people. Everybody has to decide. But why is it then that in the revealed Word of God, the people who are supposed to bless the world are destroying the world? Number one, they are God's instrument of judgment. And so are you. Remember how Paul says that when you live a Christian life, you have a certain scent. To some people, it's B.O. To some people, it's like a dead body. I don't know if you've smelled dead bodies, but if you just look on the news, whenever there's a tragedy and there are dead bodies around, everybody has their face covered. It's because the stench is so awful. Plus, it's unsanitary, but the stench is terrible. You smell that way, says the Apostle Paul, to some people. Why? Because you remind them of their own death. You remind them of the judgment of God. And that's the reason that some of you here who are followers of Christ and you became Christians as adults and you remember what you thought about Christians. You thought they were a bunch of prigs. That's P-R-I-G. You thought they were a bunch of moral <laughs> prigs. You thought that they were self-righteous. You didn't like them. You know what was really going on? They reminded you of you were feeling judged. You were feeling insecure. And that's what Christians will do to you. And guys, there's no way that you can avoid that. Now, I'm all for social skills. Some of us add to the problem by being a royal pain in the neck and truly being self-righteous. That's double death. Just be death one time. Be a nice death. Be a gentle, kind, diplomatic person who makes people sometimes feel uncomfortable. But there's no way 
that you can go into the land of the Canaanites and make them all feel real comfortable around you. Because you are agents of God's judgment. You bear the gospel. And the gospel has a cutting edge to it. Why? The gospel is good news about a kingdom that is taking over. And the gospel says, therefore, you folks need to turn around and get on the right side. That's what the word, the word is, repent. You need to turn around and become friends with the new king who's taken over everything because he is awesome and he is destructive with people who oppose him. That's, a, that's basically part of the message of the gospel. If you're bearing that message... Don't think that everyone's going to say, oh, look, the victors are coming. Welcome them home. You're an agent of judgment. So was Israel. They were a theocracy. You're not. So your judgment is merely visual and verbal. They see your lifestyle, and on occasion they hear your words about the gospel. And there's a judgment. It leads to conviction. And conviction's painful. I mean, even if you're converted... It's painful to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to know that your sins are as bad as they are. So realize you can't go into the Holy Land without being a warrior and ticking some people off. So the first thing to remember is that Israel is sent into this mission because they're not just an agent of blessing. They are also an agent of judgment. And certainly you want to go in with the intention, ultimately, of being a blessing to the city. And you are a blessing by your good deeds, your love for the poor, your leadership in race relations, everywhere you go, in your neighborhood, in your family, in, in your workplace. And you're, you're establishing a new order by the way that you live and the way you speak. And you're caring for those who are marginalized. You're looking out for the interests of others. You're not just seeing how far out east you can move to get away from the mess? You're really thinking about how can I bless the city where I live and get closer to the problem so I can make a bigger difference on the problem? That's the way you're thinking and that arrests everybody's attention because that's not the way they're thinking. Because the way we naturally come into this world and go out of it apart from Christ is thinking about moi. Number one, you're living a different life and then you have a different message. That the only way to live this life is to confess that you are a rebel and a sinner against God. That's a real popular message for you. And that you're helpless and you've got to have mercy from God in order to get into heaven. You cannot think you can do about it. That's a real popular message. So you are an agent of blessing indeed, but you're often perceived as an agent of judgment. And you are, and you have to live up to that. Secondly, we've spoken of the theocratic obligations on Israel. Peculiar theocratic obligations. Physical obligations to fight war. And we've seen before that when Christ returns and restores the theocracy, you're going back to war again. You'll fight on His side. It'll be a glorious battle against all evil. Thirdly, what people sometimes forget is that God's judgment comes first on the church. Look at how many times Israel gets wiped out. Look at all the blood and guts in the wilderness. Look at God who took an entire generation and said, I'm going to slay all of you. 
and none of you are going into the promised land. I'll start over with the next generation. That's a powerful judgment, gentlemen. Look at the times that he slays them in judgment for their adultery. Look at the times that they go into battle presumptuously and hundreds of them are slain. There's, there's, there's Israelite blood and guts all over the desert sand and all over the Holy Land. Why? Judgment always begins first in the house of God. That's the reason that Paul says your discipline in your churches is important. You can either discipline yourselves, you can either judge each other's behavior and discipline one another like a functional family, or you can just wait for God's judgment to come on that house, that synagogue of Satan, where you're doing everything just like the world. Just wait for God. He'll take care of it. There's going to be judgment. So you can be an agent of judgment in your own house, in your own church, or you can hand it over to the Lord and He'll judge it. That's basically what Paul is saying. We're men who make judgments. Now, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. That is, don't condemn someone. You're not the condemner. You're the agent of God's judgment and discipline in this life. God will take care of ultimate judgment. We don't displace Him. But we do make judgments on our behavior. And we do discipline our environments. Family, first of all, yourself, and then your family, and then your church. And then as you have influence in your businesses and in the city, in the nation and the world. You begin to try to bring order and discipline as God gives you opportunity. So we have to realize that God, first of all, judges His own people. So don't think for a moment they escape. That's where He starts. Lastly, fourthly, I would say about about holy war. Realize how Christ has changed everything. When He came... He made it very explicit what was implicit in the Old Testament. That the kingdom of God is for all the nations. All the nations. Look at Ephesians 2. Those differences between Jew and Gentile are now demolished. So that that task, that theocratic task, ended with Christ. And when He said, love your enemies... What was he saying? If you look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount when he says that, he has just said that when someone takes your, your coat, you give him your cloak as well. What's he talking about? The Romans who were ripping you off. What would the Romans be parallel to? The Canaanites. The Romans came into the Holy Land and were oppressing the Is- Israelites and were displacing them in their own land. They were Philistines. They were Canaanites. They were the Gentiles. Under Old Testament rule, Israel should seek to dispossess them and get them out. Jesus came and said, here's the way I want you to deal with these Canaanites. If they take your coat, give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, hate your enemies, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. That is, get rid of the Canaanites. I'm saying to you something else. There's a new day when we're building a kingdom made up of all the peoples. And so remember that Christ has changed everything. And so the problem with the Quran is that 
First of all, God never inspired it in the first place. And secondly, there's no New Testament. There's no new Quran. There's, it was made, it's a the, the Quran is a theocratic book that has no divine, has no divine uh, commission. And there's no love for all the nations. So what you have with God's people is that there was a divine commission to carry out his judgment in the world. And ultimately, I guess I'd add one more, fifthly, for this purpose. The whole purpose of warfare and cleansing the land is so that the land can be established so that it can be a staging ground for blessing the nations. If you take the best intent of George Bush or Barack Obama in prosecuting our exercises in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you give them the benefit of, the, of every doubt you have about either one, of those administrations. And if you ascribe to them pure motives in every case, then you will see that sometimes in order to help a nation, you have to do battle with the bad people. <laughs> of course, we're all bad people. But with, you go in and have to cleanse in order to renew. So what you have to do when you look at Old Testament holy war, look at the long-term objective and gentlemen, Look at the long-term results. A third of the world has professed their faith in Jesus Christ. A third of the world. And in those places in the world where you have what we call extreme poverty, if you take a map of the nations that experience extreme poverty and you overlay on that a map that describes the least evangelized nations of the world, there is a 97% overlap. Don't tell me that the gospel makes no difference in blessing the nations. It does make a difference. And history proves it. And the Bible says it. So whenever in the Old Testament you have blood and guts, there is a benevolent strategy and objective behind the scenes. And you can see it in, in Christ uh, ultimately. Now, we, I think what we've done in 30 minutes is take one point. So we are going to move a whole lot faster. Secondly, verse 2. We must look to God alone for protection. He says, make no covenant with Him. Show them no mercy. There's a political trust in the Lord. And you can see in the Old Testament many occasions where kings... We get nervous like Ahaz in Isaiah. What's the big criticism for Ahaz in Isaiah 7? He was trying to finagle and get the Assyrians to fight the Syrians so that the Syrians wouldn't fight Judah. And God said to him, Ahaz, forget all that political machination. I'm your God. I've got a covenant with you. When suzerain kings made covenants with vassal kings, if you, in, in the second millennium documents, you almost always see the vassal kings could never make treaties. Vassals are not allowed to make treaties. Only the suzerain can decide who's going to be in treaty. So it's the, it's the conqueror who decides where the treaties are going to be made. And God's saying the same thing. Don't you decide. I'll decide. 
where there's supposed to be a treaty, where peace is to be given, where we lay down our weapons. I'll decide that. When I declare something an enemy, that's your enemy. When I declare something a friend, that's your friend. So he's saying, don't think you're going to protect yourself ultimately through, through politics. Secondly, uh, this is C, verses 3 and 4. Watch yourself socially. That is, we must unite our hearts with those who love him. And he, he says, you shall not intermarry with them. Now, gentlemen, very clearly, he is not talking about interracial marriage. He's talking about interreligious marriage. Moses married uh, an African woman. His wife was a Cushite. And you have also some instances, you will find one in chapter 21, where when there was warfare and the men were killed in the, uh, the, in the opponent, uh, some, under some conditions, wives could be taken from them. So it's, it has nothing to do with interracial marriage. In fact, I really think the more interracial marriage we have, the better. And all you have to do is look at the history of humankind. When you're making peace treaties, you know, if the French and the English are trying to get along, they just the kings will trade a son and a daughter and get them married. That's the way you do it. And so if you want a church that is reconciled, you want the various ethnic groups within that church to intermarry because that's how you make peace. That's one social way in which you make peace. And it's just astonishing to me that you would have had a history of teaching just the opposite in the church. I don't get that. It's the opposite of making peace is to stay segregated in your families. That's, that, that's to say, if you, when you stay segregated in ethnic groups, what you're saying is we really don't trust you or we want to preserve something or we don't want to be like you. It's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you're, when you're equally yoked spiritually, we become one. So he's not talking about interracial marriage. What he is talking about is interreligious marriage. And he's saying, look, you know, and of course, later on in history, we have a great case with Solomon. He married indiscriminately, religiously. And then he ends up losing his own soul at the end. And Moses is saying, be equally yoked. Someone who believes in Jesus Christ in these days. Now, D, and, and thirdly, in terms of how we are to represent his interests, we must love what he loves and hate what he hates. That is, you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars. These are stone pillars that were phallic symbols that represented the male god, Baal. And chop down their asherim. Those would be uh, wooden poles with images on them. <clears throat> and that represented the female, Asherah. So Baal was the male, Asherah was the female. And you had the stones and the wood pillars together. And it was... It was representative of the male, um, the uh, 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 pagan fertility uh, rites. And the land was made fertile when Baal and Asherah were having sex and, and good things were coming out of their relationship. So that's the way pagan uh, gods and goddesses work. And he says, wipe all that out. Get rid of it. Now, you say, are we supposed to go destroy other religious buildings or something? I mean, what's the analogy to that? No. Look at how the Apostle Paul does it. He says, we demolish every argument that presents itself against the Lord. So as we have opportunity, we go in with a mindset and with kindness and diplomacy and waiting for the right moment. But when the opportunity comes, we exercise our moral convictions. We demolish every argument. In other words, we defend the gospel. When it's, when it's called for, we'll defend it. We'll present it and defend it. Uh, but we're taking over mentally. We don't, we're not taking over physically. Sometimes we do, and that's when the world resents us rightly. 
We've lost our own way when we think we're taking over land or property or rights or power, political power. The moral majority is a distraction. You hear me? The moral majority is a distraction. Taking over political parties or taking over this or there for my own interests. Now, we should be involved politically. We should vote and exercise our opinions. But if you think for one moment that the Democratic Party is the only party a Christian could rightly belong to, you got another thought coming. If you think the Republican Party is the only party a Christian can belong to, you got another thought coming. Your mind has been taken captive by political partisanship instead of the Scriptures. The Scriptures judges it all. And we are representatives, representatives of the living God. And we destroy idols everywhere, starting with our own party. And what I find Christians doing is trying to demolish the idols of the other party before they've demolished the idols of their own party. That means they've been taken captive to a political agenda instead of the kingdom agenda. When they are taken captive by the kingdom agenda, that's what comes out of them all the time. And everything, the things closest to them are the things that get reformed the most, starting with their own body and soul, their family, closest relationships, their church, their community, their nation, and then the world. When we're self-righteous and we have a political agenda, we start transforming way over there and ignore our, the ones that are closest to us. Moving on to the second Roman numeral. The reason we avoid all spiritual compromise, gentlemen, is because God has made us distinctive. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He has done something to you. Now, keep your finger there. I want you to see one text in the New Testament which will really help us understand this, and that's 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, and this would be 2200, page 2200, or actually it's 2198, 1 Corinthians 6. And he has spoken here against sexual immorality. He has spoken against civil litigation between brothers. And he says clearly, you're better off being wronged than trying to get righted in civil court something between you personally and another brother personally. You're better off to be wrong than to do that. And he, he condemns that. Now here's the reason for, on sexual practice and civil litigation. He says, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor reviler, uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Okay, you were the Canaanites. But you were washed. You were, past tense, sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, you used to be the Canaanite. Now you've been sanctified. Now normally... We speak of sanctification as a progressive process of becoming more like Christ. And that is the dominant way in which we use it. But here's an instance of what we call definitive sanctification. Definitively, once and for all, you've been taken out of one kingdom and put in the other kingdom. You've been taken out of the corrupt world and been brought into the pure world of the Spirit of the Lord. And he says, that's already happened to you. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart. And look at A. Our distinction is His electing love. Here's the reason it happened. 
The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. This word treasure possession is one word, segula. In Hebrew, I guess you'd spell or English, I guess you'd spell it S-E-G-U-L-L-A, segula. And it is, segula is, see, the king owns everything. He owns everything in the entire kingdom. But segula is his own personal effects. The things that he treasures the most. And they're in his bedroom. His possessions. It's not the fields. It's not the cattle. It's not all the farms he owns. It's the stuff that is most precious to him. And here's what the Lord's saying. That's you. God owns the universe. All the stars, all the galaxies. You're his treasured possession. His segula. That's an amazing statement. And why is it? Because the Lord loves you. It's not because you were distinctive. It's not because you were strong. Not because you were big. Not because you were mighty. Not because you're good looking. Not because you're above average. It's actually you are the weakest of all the nations. We'll find out, he says later. But he chose you because he loves you. You say, well, why does he love you? I don't know. The Bible kind of says it like this. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Now, why is that important? Because B... His love is based on his own character. Which means, gentlemen, it ain't going to change. If he loves you because of anything in you, you're toast. Because whatever it is in you that he might value, that's going to change. On any given day, you might have it or you might not have it. But if he loves you because of what's in him, you'd be in good shape because that is not going to change. And His love for you is eternal because He eternally loves you. That's the reason that you want to believe in election (laughs) because you will find your confidence in your Christian life just bolstered. You can't lose because it's rooted in His character rather than yours. Now, does that mean that you're not responsible to repent and believe? No, you must repent and believe. Does it mean that you're not responsible to live a holy life? No, you must live a holy life. Without holiness... No one will see the Lord. But where does the holiness come from? You were washed. You were sanctified. Passive voice. That is, it was done for you by somebody else. Where does your faith come from? It's a gift from God. Where does your repentance come from?